Lovely. Good morning. So good, so good to see you. And if you're visiting or new, you're so, so welcome to be here. I hope you enjoy the morning. Um, and uh, it is only 21 days now till Christmas, unbelievably. Um, I don't know if you've got an advent calendar, but hands up anyone who's already consumed all 24 of their advent calendar chocolates. <laughs> very disciplined, very disciplined. Well, um, this week I did discover that two-year-olds have no respect for the rules of Advent, so um, I've got a photographic evidence. So on the 1st of December, uh, I witnessed all 24 boxes being ruthlessly turned upside down um, until he made his way to uh, baby Jesus there, which you can see he's absolutely delighted about. Um, so he's, he's on the right track, um, so no judgment for him. But with no reference to your chocolate consumption or breaking of Advent calendar rules, uh, this morning we're going to look at a question, what has God done with my sin? And if you're here and you feel like I've blown it with God, if you feel burdened with feelings of guilt, if you're living with a sense of shame hanging over you, if you're struggling with an addiction, if you have doubts, or if you don't know Jesus yet, there's an invitation for you this morning to step into freedom. Because if the Son sets you free, if Jesus sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Amen? Nice. Uh, but it sounds a bit too good to be true, doesn't it? Because the reality is many, many Christians struggle with feelings of guilt. One of the most severely debilitating problems that we can face is guilt. Feelings of, of guilt can suffocate the, the human soul. Guilt robs us of the joy and peace that the Bible so clearly speaks of. And we all face those lingering doubts at some point where we think, well, just maybe I've failed once too often and I've push God to the limits of his grace. What about that sin I've committed? What about that betrayal, that hypocrisy? The things I've looked at, the things I've touched, what about my, my darkest, most vile thoughts? I'm talking about what you feel and sense when you lie in bed at the end of the day. The regret over those harsh words to your child. The lies you said to your boss to try and gain advancement the pride you felt when you were praised. And then you wake up full of lustful thoughts and fantasies and you think, where did that come from? I'm talking about how you feel when you go throughout your whole day without giving God so much as a thought. Or you, you pass over that opportunity to share your faith and you just feel so inadequate. Maybe this is just me, I'm not sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But it's not just when you've had a bad day. For many Christians, you reflect on your life as a whole and you see one failure after another, one shattered dream after another, one broken relationship after another, one sin after another. And you can feel angry and bitter about a life that has passed you by, the regret of a wasted life, the, the feeling of, of being utterly disqualified to approach God chokes you from any joy or confidence you once had. Nothing serves to undermine our enjoyment of God more than this choking sense of guilt. It's called a defiled conscience. And I'll admit, I've spent long periods of my Christian life crippled by feelings of guilt. That just as I'm, I'm failing in all these different areas of my life, I'm also failing as a Christian. I'm not doing enough for God. I'm not living up to everything that he wants for me. And I can think of no more pressing and urgent need than to have our consciences 
purified so that we can love and enjoy and serve God. Amen? So what do you do when your conscience feels dirty? Well, let's see how Hebrews 9 can help us with a a passage you may not immediately spring to mind, but we're going to look at it from verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, it's a bit of an odd passage with all these animal sacrifices, but as different as our world is today from the Old Testament, the fundamental problem of the human heart is the same, a defiled conscience, a stained sin, a heart that feels wayward and wicked. How can I come to God and be received by him when I feel so dirty and unworthy? How can I be at peace with God when my conscience incessantly stabs me with reminders of my lust and greed and selfishness and idolatry? But in Hebrews 9, we see the only solution to our problem, the only thing that will purify your conscience so that you can know that you, so that you can enjoy God and know that he enjoys you is the blood of Christ. The author declares that over against the, all these blood of bulls and goats, all these animal sacrifices, that all they could do is just cleanse you on the outside but could never truly resolve that inner turmoil in your heart. The blood of Jesus is so much better because it purifies your conscience on the inside. The blood of Jesus has the power to remove your defiling guilt because it provides the final and full forgiveness of your sins once and for all. Thank you. Do feel free to join in. Thank you. But from what is my um, conscience purified? Dead works, it says. Everything I've ever said and done to try and make myself acceptable and good enough, thinking that they might make me feel less guilty. Those works of ours are dead. They have no power to reconcile us to God. They can't set us free from the condemning power of sin. Another word for dead works is religion. Religion is the attempt to motivate people to do good works on the basis of your feelings of guilt. Religion says you're feeling guilty, so here's what you need to do. Go to work for God. Give more, pray more, serve more, do more. But the gospel says your problem isn't that you feel guilty, you are guilty. But here's all you need to do. You can receive by faith the work that God has already done for you in Christ. The underlying reason that we don't live in the fullness of the joy and peace in our relationship with God is that you and I have not fully grasped what God himself says he has done with our sin. We're consumed by what we have done with our sinning. What ought to consume us is rejoicing in what God has already done with our sins. So we're going to look at 12 things, 12 things that God has done with your sin. And you may be thinking, 12, that is excessive. I'm breaking all the preacher rules. I've been off more than I can chew. You're only, we're only allowed three points as preachers in general. But I would point out that 12 points is festively appropriate, given the 12 days of Christmas. So at the end, we'll make this into a song. Um, but I have to credit a, a book that I read um, called A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin by Sam Storms, which was the inspiration behind the 12 points 
Um, but the reason I do want to look at all 12 is to just really paint this multi-layered portrait of what God has done with our sin. And some of them will be quite, quite short, just to reassure you. But too often, the thing is, too often sin shouts so loudly in our ears that it drowns out the promises of God. But the truth and the power of the gospel that we need to hear time and time again as Christians breaks down the lies that leave us feeling crippled by guilt, and it brings us into freedom. I honestly believe there's freedom in this place for you this morning. Now, there's one important caveat. Everything I'm about to say about what God has done with your sin applies only to those who have repented and have put all their hope and trust in Jesus. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're so welcome to be here. My prayer is for this morning is that it, I will persuade you that your only hope for freedom and true lasting joy and peace is found in him, is found in Jesus. So let's dig into these 12 things. Number one, the foundational thing that God has done with your sin, if you forget everything else, this is the one, to secure for you the joy and peace of a clean conscience is he has laid your sin upon his son. Number one, I'm making these personal, so I'm making them first person, but he has laid my sin upon his son. And one of the most beautiful places we find this language, I think this was read last week actually, of of Jesus as our substitute is found in Isaiah 53, which says this about Jesus. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible is clear, we are all guilty of sin. We've all fallen short of God's standard and rebel, standards and rebelled against him, and this warrants a penalty. That penalty is the wrath of God. We stand under the terrifying condemnation of a pure and holy God, and our only hope for escaping this penalty is if there's a qualified and willing substitute to take our place and to suffer the penalty that is due to you and me. And here in verse 6, we see that God himself has provided that substitute. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is, Jesus, uh, this is God the Father has laid on Jesus, his son, the sins of us all. That on the cross, Jesus willingly and voluntarily was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The full weight of punishment that you and I deserved was laid upon him. God doesn't trivialize our sin. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. The only reason you and I can be delivered from God's punishment is because Jesus endured that punishment in our place. He pays the debt that we can never repay ourselves. In the Old Testament, uh, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat. And um, so if I imagine that Ron is the scapegoat, You're the people of Israel. I'm the high priest. I lay my hands on the scapegoat. Sorry for this, Ron. Um, and, And all the guilt of all you guys gets transferred, all of Israel gets transferred to the scapegoat. And that that was what it was symbolizing. And uh, poor old Ron is uh, the sacrificial offering. But on your cross, on the cross, your guilt has been transferred 
to another, to Jesus, that God has laid your sin on his son. He has transferred your guilt to, onto Jesus. Even though he was innocent, Jesus has been declared guilty of every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit. God in himself has provided a perfect substitute through his son to satisfy, to fully satisfy the wrath of God that stood against us. And so if we accept what Jesus has done in our place and put our faith in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we find peace with God. And everything else that God has done with your sin is the fruit of this one incredibly gracious and glorious act of God. Amen? Nice. Number two. Uh, the next five things that God has done with your sin are all centered around uh, King David, who was Israel's greatest king. But the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that David made some devastating decisions. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he was complicit in the murder of her husband. And for some of you here, the, the lingering memories of things you've done in your past haunt you. And you wonder, is forgiveness really possible for someone like me? But David is a great example of the fact that no one is beyond the mercy of God's forgiveness. Every sin, no matter how big or small, can be forgiven by God. And so in Psalm 32, despite the devastating moral failures of his past, David is able to rejoice, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. So number two, he has forgiven me of my sins. And I tell you, there's something profoundly liberating about receiving forgiveness. There's an incredible and deep joy that comes from being set free from the debt that you owe. Because sin is like this oppressive weight on our shoulders from which we long to be relieved. All these things from my past, all my failures, all my regrets. There's things that I've done in my past that I'm deeply ashamed of. When I first came to this church, I was angry and broken. I still remember the Sunday service over 15 years ago. And there was an offer to come to the front to be prayed for. And, and I was in so much inner turmoil that I, that I went up. And, and floods of tears came as, as I started to encounter the love and mercy of a gracious God. Forgiveness relieves the burden from your shoulders. If you don't know Jesus, I can honestly say nothing comes close to experiencing the joy and relief of his forgiveness. I'm no longer suffocated by the guilt of everything I've done. No longer am I striving to make up for all my failures. God laid all your sin on his son so that he can say to you, let me take your heavy load and give you rest for your weary soul. It's only at the cross of Christ where Jesus bore the weight of your sin upon his shoulders that you'll find freedom and forgiveness. And everything else that follows, the remaining 10 things, are really just an extension of what it means to be forgiven. As the Bible gives us all these different metaphors and analogies designed to drive home to our hearts as vividly as possible the breathtaking truth of all that God has done through Christ. So going back to David, after his adultery and murder, he kept quiet about what he'd done. He likely uh, had months of going to the temple, attending worship services, but keeping his sin to himself. And some of you this morning, you might be uh, holding on to a secret sin, something that, that no one else knows. 
Some of you may be struggling with a recurring sin, a habit, an addiction that you can't break. In Psalm 32, David admits the agony of his secret sin as it festered hidden and unforgiven and unconfessed in his heart. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day, day long. My, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David lived under the illusion that if I can somehow forget about my sin, God will too. But unconfessed sin is like a festering sore. You can ignore it for a while, but not forever. David was miserable until he brings his sin to God. And he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David eventually comes clean before God. He confesses everything. No more covering up. All the cupboards of his soul are emptied. His confession is like opening the floodgates of a dam. It may be messy at first, but the release of the, of the ever-increasing pressure is like life to his burdened heart. So that he can then sing out, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. He's full with joy. How would you um, feel about us introducing a new slot on a Sunday service, like a, a confession time, um, where we each come up to the microphones and we just you know, announce all the sins of your week, all the things you've been thinking, all the things you've done. After you, Jeff, you're, you're thinking to yourself. But we do everything possible to, to cover our shortcomings, don't we? Particularly in church where we want to look like good Christians. We hide our faults because we fear rejection and ultimately we want to be loved. We try to cover up our sins, but it doesn't work, and I'll tell you why, for two reasons. Firstly, like David, hidden sin leaves us miserable and full of guilt. And secondly, God already knows all your sin, whether you like it or not. But instead, by bringing our sin into the open and confessing it to God, God graciously promises to cover our sins. This is number three. He has covered my sin. The power of sin is only broken when it is brought out of the darkness and into the light. And it doesn't mean that God will make sure no one will ever find out about your sins or that they won't have consequences. For David, there were devastating consequences for his life and his family. But the point rather is that your sin has been fully covered by the blood of Jesus. You can completely uncover every sin without exception and bring it to God without any fear of ever being cast aside or abandoned by him. I find it absolutely staggering that God knows everything about me, everything, and yet he still loves me. And just to be clear, this, none of this that I'm going to say this morning means that God doesn't care how you live. He takes sin seriously. No matter what you do or how badly you mess up or sin, your eternal union with God is unbreakable and it's forever secure. When it comes to your daily enjoyment of God and experiencing the peace and joy in your heart of being a child of God, repeated and unrepentant sin does come into play. It hinders your heart from feeling God's affection. It will hinder your prayer life. To fully enjoy all that God is for us in Jesus, the Christian life includes regular confession of your sin to God. And this morning is an opportunity, it's an invitation to bring any unrepentant sin into the open 
like David. You don't have to announce it on the mic, but bring it to God, confess it to God, and the restoration for the restoration of close relationship with your heavenly Father and for your own good. And you can do that knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you can stop trying to cover up your failures in fear of being exposed. You can confess them to God in full and put your trust in Jesus with full assurance that he will cover all your sins forever. So my son, um, Joshua... enjoys playing with this toy. Does anyone know what this is? I think it's an Etch-A-Sketch, if I'm not mistaken. And um, the idea is, I'm no artist, but you draw an image. I'm not sure what I'm going to draw, but I'll just uh, draw an image. It goes a little bit wrong. No need to cry. You could just slide the bar across like this, and like magic, it vanishes. Some of you are not as impressed as I thought you might be. (laughs) But through the, the course of our lives, you know, we, we sketch an image, uh, an ugly image, really, and it goes horribly wrong. It's not as, uh, as God designed for us, full of mistakes and failures. Uh, but when we confess our sins to God, it's like he... he uh, <laughs> what's the point? Uh, God's loving and gracious hand slides the bar. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. And the slate is wiped clean. I'll um, pass this round. You can have a go at the end. Um, that's about as creative as I get. Um, but in Psalm 51, David calls on God, blot out my transgressions and my iniquities. And in Isaiah 43, God actually promises, I will blot out your sins. And we tend to live as though um, God is there and he's writing all our sins down in a black book. Each moral failure is written down by God in permanent ink and he keeps looking at it and revisiting it to, to bring it to mind. And we can view God like a disappointed parent looking at your failed grades with yet another poor uh, school report in front of him. And yet here's the good news. God keeps no such record. Nothing of your sin is written, typed, or recorded. The enemy will often remind you of every sin you have committed, but God declares, I have blotted them all out. Even that sin you're thinking of now. So number four, he has blotted out my sin. No matter how often we, we return to deface our lives with ugly pictures of anger and, and pride and, and envy, God is faithful to continually wipe the etch-a-sketch of our hearts clean today and forever because the blood of Christ has left no trace of your sin. But there is something that he has written in permanent ink. He has written your name in the book of life. To be with him forever. Nothing you can do if you're a Christian can remove your name from his book. One of the um, side effects of having a, a two-year-old um, is the deterioration of my physical appearance. Um, <laughs> so I'll be in the office at work, and uh, unfortunately the gent's toilet has a, a mirror, so I, I've been there most of the day by then probably, thinking I, yeah, I look pretty reasonably um, presented, I look okay, and then I, I look in the mirror and I sort of discover that my shoulder is just full of bogey and, and crumbs. Um, in fact, I'm just going to check it now. And I've got like mud all down the side of my jeans. And the worst one is pseudocreme. 
from his nappies. No amount of scrubbing or detergent or stain remover can get this stuff off. My clothes, which are, are typically always black, uh, seem to be covered in white stains. And I'm, never, I'm never sure if it's pseudocreme or toothpaste, um, but something has gone seriously wrong, and I, I tend to look a complete mess, um, much to my disgrace. But the Bible uh, portrays sin as dark and dirty. Sin is like a deep-dyed stain that, that soiled the fabric of my soul. It, it, sin spoils everything. And yet, despite all his moral failings, David has this confidence that God can cleanse me. Number five, he has cleansed me of my sin. In Psalm 51, David prays to God, wash, me, wash, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me from hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David knows I can't clean myself up. My stain of sin is too deep. But I love God's promise in Isaiah chapter 1 that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. The one against whom I have sinned has washed me white as snow. Ironically, a substance that usually creates an indelible stain, blood, the blood of Jesus, cleanses you from all unrighteousness. So that when God looks at you, what does he see? Does he see some old stains from your past that won't come off? Does he see all the bogey and the crumbs on your shoulders? No. He sees you clothed in the white, spotless righteousness of Christ. He sees perfection. He sees the beauty of his son. He's not just scrubbed you up. and He's washed you as white as snow. He's clothed you in his righteousness. And David goes on to ask, creating me a pure heart, Oh God, we need more than, than a covering or a blotting out of our sin. We need a deeper transformation, an internal cleansing of our hearts. And this is what God does. He gives us a new heart with a purified conscience and new desires so that we can now love God and live for him. Amen? The idea of God looking at you uh, when you're sinning can be terrifying, that nothing I do or think is hidden from God's sight. So in Psalm 51, David says, God, hide your face from my sins. Number six, he has turned his face away from my sin. When you sin, what do you do? In that moment of anguish, you've given into temptation, you hang your head in shame, you're alone at night, you're sitting at the kitchen table with your head in your hands, can't believe I've done it again. I don't know how to carry on. In your moment of greatest despair, Christ comes walking through your kitchen door. You catch his face in the hallway light. What look does Jesus have in his eyes towards you? When you're weary and worn out, when you're stumbling home, awashed with shame for drinking too much, when you've lashed out and you've said something you desperately regret, when you look at images on the computer screen or your phone tempting you to look at pornography and you're swimming in guilt and you feel dirty, what is Christ to you in those moments? What is on his face? What look is in his eyes? Do you see a shaking head? Do you see disappointment? Does he look away in shame? 
Peter denied Jesus three times. He's absolutely devastated. But in his greatest moment of regret, Jesus looks directly into Peter's eyes. The same look he had given the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the lepers, and the adulterers. The penetrating eyes of love, hope, and forgiveness. The eyes of the one who is willing to be shamed and beaten, mocked and scorned, pierced for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquities, who bled and died for you on that cross. This is our God. You won't find grace and love like this anywhere else. If you don't realize that Christ looks upon sinners awash in guilt and shame with eyes of grace and loving kindness, then you haven't yet understood the gospel. God will never look at you and be ashamed. Because he has turned his face towards his son in judgment, he will always turn his face away from your sins and look upon you with eyes of love, even at your worst moment. Psalm 51, David says, My sin is always before me. One of the reasons we struggle to enjoy all that God is for us in Jesus is that we live under the influence of a lie. And that lie is that my lifetime of sins, which often feels too many to count, is very close at hand. My sin hangs over me like a dark shadow wherever I go. But these next two images destroy that lie. So firstly, Isaiah 38 says, In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. So number seven, he has cast all my sin behind his back. This is a picture of God taking all your sin in his hand and then throwing it behind him, never to see it again. Never to be influenced by it again. Never to take it into consideration when he deals with you. God throws your sin behind his back permanently and irreversibly so that no one can use your sin against you to condemn you, not even God himself. And secondly, I love Psalm 103, which says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God has taken steps to remove your sin as far away from you as possible. He takes the guilt of our sin and propels them eastward, and he takes you and me, and he he sends us westward in completely different directions, never to meet again. Number eight, he has removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. So your sin will never find its way back to condemn you. It's impossible. Your sin and its power has been completely removed from your life. And God has provided these extravagant and mind-bending illustrations because we so often lack the capacity to comprehend the magnitude of what God has done and to accept what he thinks about us. But God doesn't just say, I love you. He says, consider the immeasurable height of the heavens above. That's how great my love is for you. He says, consider the inconceivable distance between east and west to open your eyes to how infinitely far he has removed you from your sins. Number nine. Just prod the person next to you just to make sure they're still... Still conscious. Three more things are found in Micah 7 that God has done with your sin. It says this, Who is God, a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. 
He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Number nine, he has passed over my sin. One of the most significant events for the people of God in the Old Testament was the Passover. It was about redemption from slavery by the blood of a lamb. It's about a sacrifice that passes through the fire and saves people from death and when everyone else around them is facing judgment. And the Israelite families were not saved by their personal godliness. They were saved simply by the fact that the blood of the Passover lamb was painted over their houses. But Jesus came as our true and ultimate Passover lamb and his blood now proclaims freedom for us from our slavery to sin, so that God will pass over us in judgment as Jesus' blood stands in your defense to guarantee that God will forever pass over your sin. Number 10, he's trampled over, he trampled my sin underfoot. So this is uh, an image of an ancient battle scene. Uh, and in a, a scene of that time in an ancient battle, a, when a king won a great battle, what he would do is he would stand over his enemy who was lying prostrate on the floor, and he would uh, trample, he would put his foot over him, and he would trample the conquered enemy underfoot, driving his neck more deeply into the dirt in complete submission. It's a vivid and public demonstration of the emphatic defeat of your enemy. As the risen Jesus was seated at the right hand of God, God placed all things under his feet to demonstrate his complete and utter victory over sin and Satan and and death and all the demonic hosts. So this is a picture of your sin. It's on the ground, in the dirt, and King Jesus stands there with his foot over it and he stomps it into nothingness and says, look, I have obliterated all your sin. You don't need to fear it anymore. Jesus has conquered the threat that sin poses you. Sin's power over you is done away with. Its authority to rule your life is undone. Sin no longer has the capacity to steal your joy or undermine your value or determine your eternal destiny. Number 11, he has cast all my sin into the sea. Nothing weighed more joyfully in the minds of God's people in the Old Testament than the story of how God delivered them from their slavery in Egypt and conquered Pharaoh and his islands by hurling them into the Red Sea. God hurled the enemies of his people into the sea. He sunk them into the depths of the ocean to liberate his people from freedom into slavery. And Micah is using this language of the victory of, his, of, of God over the enemies of his people to portray what God has done for us in Christ as God hurls all our sins into the sea. He defeats and subdues and forever sets us free from the guilt and punishment of our enslaving sin. God has hurled all your sins into the sea, ensuring they're lost forever. Finally, number 12. He's forgotten all my sins. God promises in Isaiah 43, I will remember your sins no more. What torments us and brings unrest to our hearts is that we live as those, those final two words aren't in the text. But God has promised, I will remember your sins no more. It's not that God has forgotten what we've done. God is all-knowing. He knows everything, past, present, and even future. But despite knowing every single thing about you, he chooses never to bring your sin to mind. He won't ever reflect on what you've done or, or contemplate it or analyze it. 
Your eternal union with Christ will never be threatened or altered because you've had a bad day. And so God has a bad day such that he decides to bring up your failures and hold them against you. What would your Christian life look like if you wake up and do your day's tasks and responsibilities and lay down to sleep again at night with a peace in your heart that God will never remember my sins? To know without hesitation or qualification or the slightest doubt that when God looks at you and thinks about you, he refuses to remember your sins. Woo! We made it. Twelve things that God's done with your sin. I haven't actually seen anyone asleep, which is miraculous. Um, but it is a lot to digest. You've done very well. And um, just to help you, twelve things is not what I would usually do as a number of points. But to help you um, remember this, because it's an awful lot to take in, we've, we've done these cards with the twelve things and the Bible verses on there. Um, and I just encourage you, I think they're going to be handed around now, so you can have one of these cards to take away, and there's enough for everyone. Um, but I'd encourage you just to use these um, biblical truths to um, declare and to meditate on, use them in your prayer time, uh, or when you're feeling tempted, you can use these to walk in freedom, to pray into them, and to give thanks to them. You could even do them over the 12 days of Christmas if you were really keen. So make, make it personal to you. Uh, and then while those are being handed around, I'll, I'll just, I'll just read, read these all out. So the truth is that God has laid my sin upon his son, Jesus Christ. He has forgiven me of all my sins. He has covered my sin. He has blotted out my sin. He has cleansed me of my sin. He has turned his face away from my sin. He has cast my sin behind his back. He has removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. He has passed over my sin. He has trampled my sin underfoot. He's cast my sin into the sea and he's forgotten all my sins. It's amazing, isn't it? God has given us this treasure chest of metaphors and images so that the breathtaking truth of the gospel may penetrate our hearts to break through the lies of guilt and shame and condemnation. But some of you uh, are living today in what's called a shame-guilt cycle which goes like this, shame, I've sinned, I feel terrible. What happens next is we move round the circle to contempt. I'm useless. And then we move round to guilt. And guilt says, I've actually hurt people. I've hurt myself. I've hurt others. What you've done starts to sink in. So we go from shame to contempt to guilt. And then we move round to performance. I'm not going to mess up again. I'm not going to mess up now. And we get far enough away and we think, I'm free now, I'm not going to mess up again, I'm good, I'm good, I can do this. And we keep moving around until we get to dread. And dread is when we're like, I've been free for quite a long time now, I feel like a ticking time bomb, I'm going to blow up on this issue very, very soon, and when I do, people will not love me anymore, God will not love me, and what happens, boom, we sin again. And then we go around, shame, oh, I've sinned again, and contempt, I'm useless, how can I worship now? And guilt, I've really hurt people. And performance, no, I can beat this, I'm really free this time. And dread, oh my goodness, I've been free a long time. And then boom, we sin again. Does anyone recognize this pattern? Because I do. We can live for years as though we need to make it up to God to try and perform, but it's such a lie. Round and round and round we go. But the point is this, when you see what God has done 
with your sin, you realize, I can get off this cycle at any point. I feel shame, I've just sinned. But I look to Jesus, who's paid for all my sins. I feel contempt, I look to Jesus, who took all my contempt upon himself. I feel guilty, I look at Jesus on the cross, and I see that all my guilt has been transferred to him. While I'm in the performance stage, I look at Jesus, who has lived a perfect life, and his righteousness is mine, so I don't have to perform anymore. While I'm in the dread phase where I feel like I might blow up, I look at Jesus and I see that he's interceding for me now before the throne of heaven and he never ceases to do so. And because he's freed me from my chains of sin, I can run to the Father who has new mercies for me every day. As I look at Christ, I can break off this chain, this cycle, sorry, I can break off this cycle at any point. And so in a moment, we're going to sing these glorious truths when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there. I see Jesus, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sin the Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. You can stand before God this morning with a clean conscience. You can declare, I'm free from condemnation. You stand with no guilt, no shame, no embarrassment, nothing in your past, present, or failure, or, or future, sorry. Nothing in your past, present, or future, whether it be physical or spiritual or, or psychological or emotional or sexual, can disqualify you. But Why? Why does God do this? Why did God choose to lay my sin upon his innocent son? Why has God gone to such lengths to ensure my sin is fully dealt with? Why does God put my sin behind his back and blot them out and cast them into the depths of the sea and trample my sin under his feet? God so loved us that he gave us his one and only son to remove every obstacle that stood between us and God. The gospel is good news because it gets us God. God has done everything necessary so that we may gain him. He is our joy. He is the reason we rejoice. We can be with him. Being free from sin was never enough. It's about the Father's relentless commitment to bring us to himself, to bring us home to his everlasting arms. And he's inviting you this morning to come and rest in his forgiveness. Come and walk in his freedom. Come and run boldly into his arms, forever welcomed as his own. Amen.